So glad that you're with us this morning. And if you can turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. Um, we started, we've been going through the book of Genesis. Spent a couple of years almost, it seems like, in Genesis. may not be that, that long. And we finished up on chapter 33 a couple of weeks ago. And I wasn't brave enough to preach chapter 34. So I, was, I, did, an Easter, I did a couple of Easter sermons and I'm very thankful for that. John 18, 1 to 18, we're using these weeks to reflect on the final hours of our Saviour's earthly life and ministry. And last Lord's Day, if you're with us, we began by joining the disciples in Gethsemane. As the Lord Jesus, he was overwhelmed with sorrow, a sorrow unto death, in great agony of soul, began to seek the face of the Father, preparing for the nightmare of suffering that was to follow. And we saw, didn't we, in amazement, that the disciples were sleeping not just once, not just twice, but three times. And if we, if we are honest in our own hearts, we felt the sting of rebuke. As we find our own hearts mirrored in their incon inconstancy and their sin, and we looked on in wonder at the submission of Christ to the will of the Lord, knowing that the cup that the Father gave Jesus to drink was a cup of unutterable suffering. And today we pick up where we left off. We're back again in the shadows of the evening at Gethsemane. And Jesus, his prayers now ending, shaking the disciples, the dis sleeping disciples awake one more time. And came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand and the Son of Man has been betrayed into the hands of sinners. And as the dozy disciples stretch and yawn and rub the sleep from their eyes, they see that line of torches now snaking through the darkness towards them. You can picture it, can't you? That line of lights snaking in the darkness towards them. And then Judas steps into view at the head of a troop of soldiers. And they have come to seize Jesus and to execute their wicked design. So Jesus concludes his prayer, Father, your will be done. And immediately we see that prayer being beginning to be answered as the will of the Lord to crush him is accomplished. But before we look into more detail at the drama that unfolds, let's pray together as we read God's word. It's holy ground, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, open our eyes and our ears. Open our hearts. Take hold of our consciences, our lives, by this portion of your holy word. Work within us to call any who do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ to true repentance before it is too late and in the hearts of those by grace who know him, to cling to him with faith, knowing that he is the good shepherd who protects us and keeps us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In John 18 and verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers 
And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Go, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfil the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having the sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not, you also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Amen. We thank the Lord for his holy and inerrant word. We'll focus on the first 11 verses of the chapter, the scene immediately following the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Father, not my will, but yours be done. The conclusion of the Saviour's Prayer that night in Gethsemane. And as we approach these events, we might be tempted to view this as a moment of weakness or abject failure or defeat for Jesus. We may even see it as a cause of mourning for us as we watch our Saviour betrayed and bound and led away to the awful ordeal that awaited him. And to be sure, the malice of a hateful world now begins to execute its worst intentions upon him in a way that should appall us. The evidence of the full depravity of the human heart is on display like never before. The bondage of the one who came to set us free. The betrayal of the redeemer of God's elect. The violence done to the God-man, maker of heaven and earth. It is monstrous. Is it not? It is monstrous. But not everything is as it first appears here, as I hope to show you in the few minutes we have together. In particular, I want you to see two aspects of our Saviour's identity and mission that I think these first 11 verses highlight for us. First of all, we see the true King judging the world. And then secondly, we see the Good Shepherd protecting his flock. So the true king judging the world and the good shepherd protecting his flock. 
Only two points, you'd be glad to hear. Only two points. Wait and see how, how that works out, shall we? But first of all, the true king judging the world. First of all, I want you to imagine with me the ancient city of Jerusalem. Just imagine it with me two days before Passover. It would be jammed, the city would be jammed with people, all gathered for the festival. Narrow streets are crowded, bustling with people, all of them busy with great preparations for the feast. While everyone else is focused on the festivities, the chief priests and the elders of the people have gathered in a secret clandestine meeting at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they have evil on their hearts. They have a, a dark business on the agenda. And Matthew 26, 4 and 5 explains that it's at this meeting, two days before Passover, they hatch their plot. Matthew says to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. We did, we did not know the details, exactly what the sequence was. But whether it was at this meeting that they were still gathered or at some point shortly thereafter, it is at this point Judas makes contact with them. Luke 22 verse 3 said that Satan entered into Judas, who then conferred with the Jewish leaders, who were frankly jubilant to find an agent to assist them in their wicked design, who was so close to Christ and his inner circle. And now the plan has been made, the blood money has been exchanged between Judas and the leaders of the Jews. And he's gone back with the other disciples to prepare the feast in the upper room. Judas sat with them as Jesus washed John's feet, then James and Andrew's and Thomas's and so on, until Jesus would have washed his feet. He ate and drank with them at the Passover meal until the moment arrived. And having taken that morsel of unleavened bread from Jesus' hands, he could delay no longer, and he went out into the night to rendezvous with the plotters. So while the Lord Jesus is agonising in Gethsemane, Judas was coordinating this assault on his former brothers and their master. And then armed with torches and lanterns and weapons, Judas was at the head of a troop of soldiers and officers to the place that he knew they would be, where he had spent so many nights before with the disciples and the Lord Jesus. Now there is some debate as to whether the soldiers with Judas were Roman soldiers or Jewish soldiers. The words that John uses, in, 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 again in verse 12, usually refers to Roman ranks. And some have suggested that the armed group actually consists of Jewish temple guards and then Roman officers who have been seconded to the chief priest for his use. If that is the case, then what we see is the Roman civil and the Jewish Jewish religious powers of the city of the day normally at loggerheads with each other, normally opposed to each other, they are now united against our Lord Jesus. And they've come out armed for a fight. And if 
Peter's violent act in verse 10 is any indication, if it had only been the disciples that they'd come to arrest, perhaps they would have been justified in their expectation of conflict. But they've come bristling with weaponry, as if expecting to fight their way through the eleven and finally lay their hands on an unwilling Jesus to drag him away, kicking and screaming into the night. But notice what happens. Jesus steps forward. Jesus steps forward. Before anyone can speak or do anything, Jesus takes the initiative. It truly is a remarkable moment. He steps forward to receive, presumably, Judas's faithless kiss. And then he turns to the mob and says quietly, Who are you looking for? Whom do you seek? And having seized the initiative, everyone must now react to him. Whether it's the disciples or the traitor, or whether it's the temple guards, or Roman officers, they have to follow his lead. And look at his reply when they tell him they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He simply says, I am he. And they draw back and they fall to the ground. Three times over. He says it twice and three times John records these words to make the point, I am he. What a contrast to the occasions we find the disciples asleep, unable to watch for even an hour. Here is Jesus, clothed with authority. Thrice over, John reports Jesus' words, his willing self-identification to the soldiers. Jesus isn't hiding behind the eleven. He's not behind an olive tree over there. He steps forward and offers himself up. And he does it, notice this carefully, not as a helpless victim, stripped of power, overcome by the hatred of a world that has rejected him, not at all. We see his dignity, his authority, as the divine son who answers them, as you probably know in Greek, ego imai. If you know anything about John's gospel, Jesus has repeatedly used this phrase, to point to his identity and his mission. Who he is and what he came to do. The Greek use of the Hebrew name of God revealed to Moses at Sinai in Exodus 3. I am. Jesus literally says, I am. And what happens here? As Jesus, as God reveals himself to people like this in the Bible... I'll just read a couple. Judges 13, 20. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. Daniel 8, verse 18. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. Acts 22, 7. When the persecuting Saul of Tarsus met the exalted Jesus on the Damascus road, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Revelation 1 verse 7. John sees the exalted Christ. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And here, 
here on an ordinary evening in an olive grove, in an olive grove in Jerusalem. This unremarkable looking man, Jesus of Nazareth, he locks eyes with his captors and identifies himself and the revelation puts every one of them in the dust. I am he. Earlier, when Jesus had been praying at Gethsemane, we, we got a glimpse, didn't we, of the solitude, the sorrow and the submission to the Father's will by the Lord Jesus Christ. His submission to the sufferings that were ordained for him. And we heard him pray, not my will, but yours be done. Now that prayer of submission to God's will complete, we see it beginning to be answered with the arrival of Judas and the troop of soldiers. But we ought not to imagine that Jesus is subject to the indignities of betrayal and bondage and beatings and everything else that is to come as a merely passive victim, helplessly enduring what is beyond his power to stop. No, 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 no. He is a man in his human nature with the limitations and the liabilities of frailty. But for all his frail humanity, as he demonstrates to us here once again, he is unconquerable. He is the great I am, who just by saying who he is, levels a squad of soldiers, armed to the teeth, ready for violence, simply by saying who he is. This is no mere victim. This is the Lord of glory. This is the God-man stepping forward actively bearing his power in a flash of divine glory, lest anyone think him as a pitiful and put-upon casualty of men's evil plans. He is the obedient son. He's actively going at his father's behest to embrace the sufferings ordained. And as we see that, I want to make sure we don't miss the way that John illustrates the fundamental consequence that must inevitably follow upon this disclosure of Christ's identity and mission, upon his obedience and sufferings. If this is who Jesus is as he goes to the cross, what difference does it make? What are the implications? Well, look at the text. John highlights the separation between the disciples and the mob. Jesus has shaken the eleven awake. He has roused them from their slumber. And then he steps forward, positioning himself between the, the eleven and Judas, who John says was standing with the soldiers. If you were to take out your iPhone or your Samsung, whatever you use, and take a snapshot of that moment and capture the scene, you will capture in miniature the great divide that Jesus is coming. His cross and resurrection, his reign forces on every one of us. There are those who follow him and there are those who deny him. There are false believers in the midst, Judas, there are secular powers, Roman officers. There are representatives of the religious establishment, the temple guards. There are Jews and Gentiles. There are false friends and open enemies. And when Jesus makes himself known in their midst, the representatives of the rebel world fall to the ground judged. 
You see, that is what Jesus' coming does. Luke 21, verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They shall be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It is a sobering picture. The great divider, Jesus, and his work forces all people everywhere into one of two camps. There are those who are his disciples. Please see this. Those who are not his disciples will fall one day to the thunder of the voice of the Son of God who will say to those who have not repented when he comes to judge, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And they will be cast into the outer darkness where there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The tableau here at Gethsemane, under that snaking, flickering light of the soldiers, as Jesus goes to be judged, is a foreshadowing of the day to come. And it will blaze with light when Jesus the judge returns. And the sheep will be separated from the goats, the redeemed from the damned forever. And it seems to me to be supremely fitting that we should see this division as Jesus begins his final ascent to Calvary. Because it is the cross that is the stumbling block to so many people. Today as well, it is the cross of Christ that is the divide. It is the cross that will cause people to decide into which of one or two camps they will go. It is what you do with the suffering Christ. With this man nailed to a Roman gibbet that will decide everything for you. Here in Gethsemane is the king judging the world. That's what we see, the king judging the world. But secondly, we see the good shepherd protecting his flock. When Jesus' enemies reply a second time that they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, look at his answer, look at the Saviour's answer in verse 8. I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. If you seek me, let these men go. J.C. Ryle says of this moment that the tender sympathy and the consideration of our great high priest for his people come out very beautifully in this place and would doubtless be remembered by the eleven long afterwards. They would recollect that the very last thought of their master before he was made prisoner, was for them and for their safety. If I were the one arrested, if you were the one arrested, my mind would be in turmoil. I've, <laughs> you need to ask me afterwards if you like, I've only been pulled over by the police a couple of times and very unjustly on both occasions, I hate it. But there's nothing quite like <laughs> In Budapest once, anyway, that was the worst. But there's nothing quite like the fear of seeing blue lights flashing. And when it happened, you can barely think about anything else. My heart was pounding, my palms were sweaty, I was scared to death. I couldn't think of anything. 
apart from just phone the British consulate. But no, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus, as they seize him and they tie his hands behind his back and they brutally shove him around. Jesus' thoughts are for his disciples. It's amazing. They, they fill his mind. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let them go. More, more is going on, of course, than Jesus merely protecting the disciples. In this one moment of crisis, as John's little comment in verse 9 makes clear to us, this was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. When he had been praying in John 17, this is what he had said to the Father. Of those that you have given me in eternity, the elect of God, I have not lost even one. And so the same power, the same power that levelled the soldiers with a word, keeps the disciples. The same power that levelled the soldiers protects and preserves them from eternity to eternity as his own. Now to be sure, one of the band of disciples outwardly called by Jesus to follow him as we see clearly in this story, had never truly been his. Although he had attached himself to Jesus' followers, he never belonged to Jesus. But at this moment of crisis, Judas stands not with the eleven, but where he belongs, with the enemies of the cross, falling to the ground at the I am, I am. I am he. It's a sober warning that we ought to make our calling and election sure. It isn't enough, beloved, to associate with Jesus and his disciples. It isn't enough to enjoy an external connection to those who trust in him. Judas Iscariot is infamous, isn't he? As the, in history, as the archetypical traitor. But I don't think that is how we should view him. Not as a one kind of traitor, but rather as a chief example of a class of religious people who can be found in every Christian assembly in the world. They're formally attached themselves to Christ, but they're not Christ's and they do not know him. And it should shake us from spiritual laziness and lukewarmness to realise that an apostle had been out on mission trips to do ministry with the others whose feet Jesus washed in the upper room. He ate the last supper with Jesus. Such a one could kiss his master and with an apparent act of adoration repudiate his lordship. Be sure, brothers and sisters, that your religion is more than just superficial. It is possible to belong to the church and not belong to Jesus. There's a sober warning, but there is a wonderful comfort. There is a beautiful comfort. Think about the others. Just think about the others. What a ragtag bag the eleven were. If you just think about them, you had a tax collector, you had a zealot. You know, they would have had a really, really interesting dinner conversations, wouldn't they? You had Thomas with all his doubts. You're James and John who are arguing about who's going to be first. Is it me? Is it you? 
And even dear old Peter, so brash and overconfident, three times he is about to deny even knowing Jesus. This motley crew of hypocrites and loudmouths and show-offs. My friend, Jesus kept them and guarded them and shepherded them so he did not lose even one. He who began a good work in you, hypocrite, loudmouth, show-off, coward, compromiser, doubter, he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will. He absolutely will. You are kept. You are kept. I am kept. Weak, trembling. But honest believer in Jesus, you are kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I know and I tell you that all that the Father has given to the Son can never be lost. He keeps you. He keeps you. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. This is the ground, my friend, of our assurance. It isn't, look how wise I am. Look how spiritually minded I am. I don't know whether you know, I'm a very spiritual person. It isn't, look how holy I am. It isn't, I have measured up and I've prayed harder, I'm slightly softer, I've done more, I've studied more. It is not, in my case, I'm a minister of the gospel and I preach the word, therefore I know that I am saved. None of those things establish my security. None of those things provide certainty when trials assault me. That I will stand firm. What can? What is the basis of your confidence before God? It must be that Jesus was bound so you can go free. Jesus was bound so you can go free. Jesus delivered himself up to protect you. And it must be that of those who the Father has given the Son, Jesus Christ has never lost a single one. He will keep you. He will hold you forever. That is the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. If the cross is the great divide, so that on the one hand there are those who fall on the judgment of Christ, there is another side. Those who receive the protection and the watch care of Jesus Christ. Those he delivers, those he keeps, those he rescues, those he redeems. You know when Peter tried to fight back in verse 10, and sometimes I feel, I feel really irate sometimes. It's not a good idea to read social media on Saturday night, by the way. You can get very irate very quickly, and you go looking for your sword to cut off Malchus's ear. But when Peter tries to fight back in verse 10 and cut off Malchus's ear with his sword, Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Richard Cecil said he has resolved to drink to the dregs the cup of wrath without mercy, that we might drink the cup of mercy without wrath. He does not want them to fight back, you see. He wants to go to Calvary because that is how he will keep us, deliver us, and save us. It is how he is going to keep you and deliver you and save you. 
he gave himself for you. Now I want you to see as we close the dilemma then that this passage forces on us all. Forces on us all. The cross does not allow neutrality. The cross has no room for neutrality. It sounds a lovely thing, doesn't it, neutrality? Switzerland, lovely place. Austria, where we live, neutral country. It's wonderful. But the cross allows no neutral space. You're in one group or the other. Do you see it? You're either with Judas or the soldiers, or you're with Jesus and the disciples. What you do, what you do with Jesus of Nazareth, what you do with the suffering Saviour will determine to which group you belong. Not in this life only, but in the age to come. If you are to come under the shepherd care of Jesus Christ, rather than fall before the voice of judgment, you must trust yourself. You must trust your whole life, your eternity into his hand. You must turn from your sin and beg for his mercy, ask him for forgiveness, cry to him for deliverance. He is holding out the cup of mercy. Today is the day of grace and he's holding out the cup of mercy before the day of judgment comes. Because he drank in full the cup of wrath so you, my friend, can drink the cup of mercy. It is for you. And you take it simply by trusting him. Take the cup, drink in his mercy, and be received under his shepherd care. He loves to rescue sinners. There's joy in heaven over one repentant sinner. So trust him. Flee to him. Flee from the wrath that is to come. Will you answer his call? The true king, the true king, judging the world. When you look at the world and you say, how, how can this be possible? He is going to judge the world. He's coming. He is the true king who will judge the world. We get to see a little glimpse of it. One day, we will see it wide-eyed because every eye will see when Jesus returns. It doesn't matter a jot what they say. They, every eye will see. He is the true king, but he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd who protects his flock. He will keep you. He will guard you. He will feed you. And thank the Lord, he will bring us safely home at last. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.